particle would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land in which this podcast is recording on. That's the Wajak Noongar people. We would like to pay respects to elders past, present and emerging. Since the start of 2022, I've consumed my own body weight in bread. Toast, tortillas, cake and muffins. To me, bread is more than a food. It's home. And it might seem strange that I should begin this episode with an ode to bread. But as you'll see later, it's kind of the whole point. Hi, this is Elements, where we investigate how the natural elements shape us, the people of Western Australia, and our environment. I'm your host, Thomas Crow, and on today's episode, we're going to look into how water shapes Western Australia's plant life, from our native plants to our agricultural industry. Like all living things, plants need water or they die. Any child could tell you this. It's far more interesting to consider why plants, or indeed any of us, need water to live. It turns out, water is a bit of a unicorn in the vast array of chemical reactions possible in our universe. It's both small enough and charismatic enough to get itself into a lot of trouble. But why? Well, a molecule of water consists of one oxygen atom and two hydrogen atoms. The nucleus, that's the central core of the atom, is much larger and more attractive in oxygen than its hydrogen counterpart. So because of this large imbalance in attractive forces, two poles of electronegative charge are created, kind of similar to the poles of a magnet. A water molecule's ability to bond with other charged molecules is one of the foundations of all Earth life. It is sometimes called a universal solvent because it can dissolve a lot of things. It aids the movement of chemicals through cells, influences how proteins fold, and it can aid or hinder millions of chemical reactions within the cell every second. There are few places in the world where the connection between water and life is as apparent as Western Australia. To the north and south of Perth, the country transformed from ruddy grassland to breathtaking colour during wildflower season. The land blooms at the onset of seasonal rains. Those wildflowers expend vast stores of energy hoarded during the drier months to reproduce en masse. Every field and roadside is filled with colour. It's incredible to see which is why so many of us go out and watch it. Elsewhere, eucalypts and banksias, our state's most iconic trees and shrubs, have spread over millennia of evolution. They've also developed genetic plasticity. This is a term that describes when traits change according to the environment. These trees can store beneficial traits. Similar to how you might save money for difficult times. And with Western Australia's rainfall changing dramatically over the past decade, and set to change further still, 
The survival strategies of plants adapted to drought become vital to ensuring our own food security. Adapting the genetic and ecological lessons Australian plants have learnt over generations may hold the key to keeping our food secure in a drier and more hostile future. Eucalypts are everywhere. They've spread across Australia, evolving to grow in a wide variety of environments, from tropical rainforests to dry grassland, even to the sandy coasts. Despite their widespread prevalence, many eucalypt species are vulnerable to drought. By analysing the genomes of eucalypt species, that's the sum of their genetic information, we can not only learn how they evolved to adapt such a wide variety of conditions, but also protect eucalypt environments from drought. We're facing changes in, in climate and water availability is one of those. If we get reduced rainfall um, and increased temperatures, that combined will reduce water availability to plants and therefore adaptation strategies require the plants to adapt to that change in water availability. So plants have um, the capacity to do that on a seasonal basis, obviously, because there's more rain in, in winter than there is in summer, and they've got um, you know mechanisms to, to regulate um, their, their processes to do that. But when you get changes over a long time uh, that changes the amount of overfeed, then they've got no chance to balance that out over season. Professor Margaret Byrne is the Executive Director at the Department of Biodiversity, Conservation and Attractions in Western Australia. There, a team analysed the genomes of several eucalyptus species. And there's a lot of them. There are over 900 eucalypt species in Australia, comprising of the eucalyptus, corymbia and angophora genera. Genera, which is the plural of genus, describes big groups of related species. And these species are further separated into a number of subspecies across Australia that have adapted to their local environment. The way they have adapted to drought conditions can be broken down into two responses, genetic adaption and plastic adaption. Genetic adaption, things like leaf size, leaf color, and root characteristics, are hard-coded into the plant to help it survive hot, dry conditions, usually in areas where these conditions are the norm. To monitor this, Margaret's team mapped a library of genetic information for eucalyptus subspecies. They found drought-tolerant species had a suite of genes to help eucalypts survive the harsh conditions. There is also plastic adaption, the ability for trees to change in response to the environment. One example is the control of closing stromata. These are the photosynthetic pores and leaves that close to preserve water. Plastic traits can also include learned responses to the environment. But plants can kind of learn, if you like, get a learned response. So we've shown in glasshouse trials that if you expose trees and saplings to a heat wave, you'll get a variation in response. You allow them to recover, you expose them to a second heat wave, then their response will be faster or quicker because they've sort of, sort of got the, the genetic mechanism in place and then they respond faster the second time. So they can get a learned response to repeated peak waves. That means they're better at responding to it than just the immediate first peak wave. But this learned adaption only goes so far. 
Since the 1970s, Australia's southwest has lost up to 20% of its rainfall due to cool westerly winds moving south. This, coupled with the effects of climate change, mean in Western Australia, even as temperatures increase and average annual rainfall continues to fall, we will get more intense periods of rain. These short bursts of intense rainfall can lead to soil compaction and erosion. The loss of soil quality and the damaging effects of intense rain will threaten both human and native vegetation. All life exists within a set range of external conditions to which it has adapted. If these conditions change too much, species can struggle to reproduce and it can lead to what is called a bottleneck effect. Usually, this is a mass die-off of the species. Those individuals that survive have traits adapted to the new conditions, but have less genetic diversity overall. This can spell trouble if the conditions change again, whether that be freak weather events, disease, or competition. Many native plants are competing with introduced species. And while any gardener can tell you many plants struggled to adapt to Western Australia's unforgiving conditions, some are carving out new ecological niches for themselves in the wake of human environmental modification. Regardless of dispersal restriction or water treatment, it seems that non-native grasses just did well overall. And so they seeded a lot earlier than everything else. And so when you seed earlier than everything else, that means you also have priority over really good microsites. So you have priority over like real estate, essentially. You get um, access to resources before anyone else. You don't have to compete with, an, with anyone else. But it also means that you can impact everything else that comes after you, whether negative or positively. And so the earlier seeding seems to happen with non-native grasses, which is kind of really important. Dr. Maya Ramundo is a postdoctoral fellow at Princeton University. She studied the dispersal of native and invasive grasses in Western Australia's wheat belt. In the heart of wildflower country, these grasses wage a life and death struggle against one another through narrow corridors of non-pastoral land. Changing rainfall is upending the delicate balance between species. One of Maya's experiments involves studying how these changes in rainfall affected grass seeds. Yes, the native species are pretty good with low rainfall, but they might not necessarily be good with drought. In a blog that included a recipe for cooking nettles, the noted Australian forager and environmental educator Diego Bonetto once described weeds as the strongholds of nature, the untamables, the unruly, the ones actually fighting back, blow after blow, seed after seed. In a land where humans have changed so much of the environment to suit our desires, the intractable will of non-native grasses to thrive despite our best efforts, and despite conditions that are threatening so many species so long adapted to the Western Australian climate, it proves how true the moniker stronghold of nature really is, which is great for the weeds, but unfortunately not so great for our native plants. 
Maya found drought-like conditions change seeding times differently for native and invasive species. Non-native grasses tended to seed earlier in response to drought, while native plants tended to seed later. Invasive grasses also show something like the plastic response observed in eucalypts. One species of South African capeweed is invasive to Western Australia, but also found in New South Wales and elsewhere across the country. Over relatively few generations, it was able to expand alongside European colonization of Australia and rapidly change its characteristics to suit the local environments, something that took eucalypts centuries to accomplish. In his now famous book, Sapiens, Yuval Noah Harari noted that humans did not domesticate wheat, rather, wheat domesticated us. At the dawn of agriculture, humans began to care for wheat, killing its competition while supplying it with water and good soil. Almost nowhere is this tradition more widely practiced than the Australian wheat belt. Western Australia grows up to 10 million tonnes of wheat each year, much of which is grown in the wheat belt. And for each tonne of wheat produced, 1,827 litres of water is consumed. Multiply that by 10 million, and each season, the equivalent of an inland sea is poured into Western Australia's thirsty soil to grow our wheat. While wheat is highly calorific, meaning we get a lot of energy per plant in our food, it uses up much more water than our native drought-tolerant grains like mulga and kangaroo grass. Local fruit and nut orchards have an even greater water bill, and this is just if we wish to keep our diets vegetarian. A single milking cow can drink 200 litres of water a day, and will need to be fed plants grown requiring even more water. In a campaign to promote plant-based food choices, the United Nations Environment Assembly determined that a single average cheeseburger required over 3,000 litres of water to make. Now, nobody's suggesting we go without food to save water. But it's useful to think how directly our choices in diet influence the use of water in our state. Every Western Australian has experienced water restrictions during dry seasons. Most primary schools have led water-wise campaigns to limit our shower times. And we're told to diligently turn off a tap when brushing our teeth. It's strange then that we never pause to think about the literal tons of water poured into maintaining our lifestyle. But what do we do with that information? Well, there are two options. One looks towards our state's past, while the other looks towards our distant future. Both can work together to transform our agricultural water use. The first approach is the adoption of more native foods in our diets, these include wild yams from the Discorsia genus and cattails known as typhus. Also, hemodrum bulbs and wild grasses served as staples in Noongar culture. By commercializing these plants, Western Australians would not only cause less impact due to farming, but potentially save a great deal of water in cultivation. There are hurdles, however. One of the largest problems appears to be it's difficult to sell food relatively few people want to buy. Simon Bryant of the ABC show The Cook and the Chef postulated this was because our eating patterns were brought here from other countries. When colonists brought over these habits, they didn't really think about the suitability to the climate. 
There's also the legacy of European colonization, which effectively smothered Aboriginal knowledge of native food. For these reasons, Australian native foods have really failed to move beyond the specialist restaurant menu and onto the working class dinner plate. That's where it really counts. Another challenge comes from the competition. It is simply much easier to grow huge swaths of wheat, corn and other Western staples because they've been bred to maximize yield over generations. This includes crossbreeding and selectively mutating plants to optimize their ability to create high calorific food with relatively little effort. Though this can be a bit of a trade-off with pest and disease susceptibility, depleting soil health and fewer nutrients per calorie. The second intervention in Western Australian agriculture involves selectively breeding crops to need less water and changing our farming practices to conserve more water. One proposed method of conserving water is by covering the soil surrounding crop furrows with plastic or chemical covering. This method's called capping. It reduces the amount of water lost to evaporation. In 2017, the Grains Research and Development Corporation conducted research on capping in rural Western Australian farms. They found plastic capping was able to increase crop yield in both dry and wet years. While plastic capping, essentially covering the grounded plastic, won't work on the scale of a commercial farm, the GDRC suggested that a biopolymer, a type of protective spray juiced from natural components, could function in a similar way without the plastic waste. Another method of reducing water use involves smart technology. Electronic sensors connected to gates along irrigation channels and in the soil can release water at scheduled intervals, based on when the soil is dry, rather than relying on manual water release. Some Australian companies, like AgriFutures Australia, have used these sensors to increase water efficiency. In New Zealand, Plantech have developed satellite and drone monitoring of kiwifruit plants. By monitoring kiwifruit leaf color using hyperspectral imaging, which is a way to see across the electromagnetic spectrum beyond just visible light, they can remotely track the health of the plants and determine when they need water. But technology is not a silver bullet for the problems occurring in Western Australia from a drying landscape and increasing demands on water. As you've heard from our other episodes, climate change is exacerbating these issues. And Australia needs to do much better at addressing its greenhouse gas emissions. But technology and conservation can help alleviate some of the worst impacts of extreme weather for both our native and our agricultural plants. So does that mean I'm giving up on bread? Unlikely. But it does mean I'm thinking more proactively about how my food choices are impacting Western Australia and the world. This episode of Elements was produced by Thomas Crowe. Executive producers are and Michael Gatt. Original music was written by Gabriel Gibbons. Elements is brought to you by Particle. To find out more about all the weird and wonderful science happening in Western Australia, visit particle.scitech.org.au or follow us on social media at particlewa.com.